Man Radio.
Carnivore Diet Podcast on Everyman Radio. Hello, Sean. All right, Richard. Well, I've got just about an hour that I can share with you, so then I'm going to jump on another interview. So, wow, fantastic. Anything. I'd say anything you can spare is perfect, so you really don't have to worry. So. Okay. Well, what do you want to, tell me what you want to talk about. Um, well, it's. I'd say it's more what would you like to talk about. So we are relatively new. I say relatively. Um, I started about 10 years ago. Um, really more learning how to podcast and um, the technology and music, mixing in music and trying myself a creative and interviewing who we could, who was interesting. And it's interesting because I found um, a 10 year old podcast that I made that um, has a song that I I made at the time um, it was <clears throat> it was a new form of music that still doesn't exist to this day okay I'm overselling my my creativity but it was I called it paleo grime um, after grime which is a kind of UK kind of rap I guess or um, oh, a bit like Stormzy where they have this they call it grime um, okay it's okay but um, and so just playing on that I I was very keen at the time about 10 years ago years ago and looking at the paleo diet and had friends that were experimenting with it and having some very good results with it and and so I made this um, a track of mixing in um, sort of voice voice recordings of people who had investigated, I think, the, the lipid daddy lie. I think, I'm not sure if that's what it was known as or what I called it, or, but um, uh, the name Ansel Keys popped up, um, the lipid hypotheses myth. Um, so that was 10 years ago, and then kind of put it to bed, really, and just it, it re, uh, gave new birth to it, um, beginning of this year really and get it, getting it going again. And so they convinced us that human health depends on foods we didn't eat for more than 99% of our entire existence. How did this happen? But when you get back and you start looking at the medical literature and you root back through to find out where this whole idea came from, it's bogus. It's bogus. Growing up like most others I know Eating what's in front of me Going with the flow But I got a little older, wiser Questioning what I ate Did a little digging, searching Learn about my fate Saturated, fast demonized I found the proof it needs Published 1950s by biochemist Ansel Keys Seven countries, fat consumption Versus heart disease Fifteen others didn't fit And that's what no one sees It's bogus this whole idea that dietary fat causes cholesterol problems is sort of a myth. The whole idea that uh, cholesterol problems lead to heart disease is a myth. The theory is completely and totally wrong. It's bogus. Low fat chili, mucho heart attacks, and high fat eating Dutch in their prime. The punishment for this bad science. He's peering on the front.
cover of time. Keys became the daddy of lipid hypotheses myth. Fat cholesterol arteries, heart disease. Agribusiness love it as they flog us processed trash. Pathocratic CEOs get fatter wreaking all the cash. Now, I know, the lipid daddy lies. Drop the junk along with gluten pies. Life's sublime with paleo grime. Local farm shop is Romeo time. Now, I know, the lipid daddy lies. Drop the junk along with gluten pies. Life's sublime with paleo grime. Local farm shop is Romeo time. It's bogus. This whole idea that dietary fat causes cholesterol problems is sort of a myth. The whole idea that uh, cholesterol problems lead to heart disease is a myth. The theory is completely and totally wrong. It's bogus. Supermarket aisles, 1 to 23. All they sell are chemicals, none of which are feed. Only ones that clean dishes and the floor toilet duck. Plastic foods in pretty boxes, nutritious as mucking up our health, not to mention our wallet. Big Pharma likes obesity, shut up and take your tablet. Don't wave your hands in the air like you don't care. Grow up, cameo, time to go paleo. Bogus. Saturated fat, new world chat. Put away your tin hat, win at model combat. Fat cat, pathocrat, what you looking at? Corporate doormat, self-control workout. Cardio and physio, don't listen to officio. Trans fat, cheerio. Agribusiness CEO, what's the scenario? Looking good with paleo. It's bogus. Now, I know, the lipid daddy lies. Drop the junk along with gluten and pies. Life's sublime with paleo grind. Local farm shop is Romeo time. It's bogus. So it's very interesting to hear about um, yourself and, and what what um, what you're primarily focused on. And I, I saw that you actually do a lot of podcasts yourself. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I've started a podcast with my co-host Zach Bitter. We've done, I don't know, 150 or so over the last, I think we're a year and a half old. And so we've been, okay. you know, pretty, pretty regular podcasters. And I, I've been on quite a few, you know, I've been on, I don't know, 100 or so guests of other folks' podcasts. So, yeah, I do, I do a fair bit of that. Yeah. No, that's cool. Because, um, um, well, you know the uh, problems and uh, yeah, the problems of actually putting these things together and going through it, and uh, so that's uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, the technical issues, the scheduling issues. You know, the, the, sometimes the technology cooperates, sometimes it doesn't. No, absolutely, yeah. I appreciate the the, the effort that goes into to, to some of this. Although it's pretty neat we've got some pretty good technology now that allows really anyone to to start podcasting that's why we see such a uh you know large number of them occurring now yeah we're doing it yeah yeah it's good and so i saw i did start listening to uh one of yours because i i guess i just found it i wanted to get some um 
uh, feelers really for, for yourself and what you do. I think um, I I I, th I think I first saw your uh, references to you on uh, f on Facebook. People sharing something you were writing. Um, Oh, which is great to see and um, um, I think yeah I was quite interested in yeah the car what you call the carnivore diet or um, so and, and how did that uh, come about for yourself yeah I mean that was just a personal evolution of my own diets you know I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s now when I was in my say early to mid 40s I noticed that Despite you know a very you know regimented exercise routine that I had done my whole life and you know I've been a high level athlete, I was developing you know signs of illness, you know metabolic syndrome, you know things like that, and, and uh, I had decided at that point that uh, I could not in fact eat whatever I wanted and exercise it off. That I had to make an adjustment of diet, and uh, you know I, I went through a, about a seven or eight year experiment of different diets and uh, what ultimately gave me the best results was a you know basically an animal based diet where I basically eat pretty much just animal foods and that has given me the you know which most people would be surprised by myself included but it has given me the best you know health results that I've had in my entire life you know both from a just objective and, and subjective standpoint from, from a health standpoint but also a body composition then also from an athletic uh, performance standpoint. Okay, cool. And so, are you still? What I don't know what kind of sport you're doing. I did see on your website, and I think you just mentioned the sport, but rugby. You do you still play, or did you used to play? No, I play. I played at a high level. You know, when I was younger, I played. Actually, played you know, semi-professionally in New Zealand. Got to play against a number of the New Zealand All Blacks, and uh, you know, so I did that until I was about thirty years of age, and then I kind of. Uh, Kind of got tired of being kicked in the head. <laughs> went back to get a real job. Went back into medical school. Became a physician. Oh, wow. uh, I, you know, I rotated through different sports. I was a, I was a, a powerlifter, strongman competitor. I ended up doing uh, track and field and the Highland Games, which you may or may not be familiar with. I know the proximity to Scotland, so I did that. I was a world champion in that. Wow. At a master's level, I had won. Uh, I set some American records. In, Powerlifting was a national competitor and strongman, and then um, in the last few years, I kind of adopted this rowing, uh, oh, wow. this, this concept to rowing, and so I ended up breaking uh, six American records and three world records and winning a world championship in rowing, which I did just uh, just this past February, I won the world wow. championships uh, recently in that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been you know active athletically my whole life. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I kind of. I kind of picked up on the rugby because at the moment it's the the World Cup, of course. Correct. Yes. So um, I, I saw America has a team. I was quite surprised. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, no, we do. You know, we've had a team for decades, and, and just, we've just not been able to compete at the highest level just because our top athletes get fallen into other sports. Whereas, uh, you know, the athletes that would go into American football or something like that, basketball, baseball, would. We go into rugby or you know what you would call football, which we <laughs> so, so yeah, we have just different different uh, uh, different sport options to track the uh, you know it's where they go where the money is, so which which often makes sense. That's where that's why a lot of things happen where the money is, right? Oh yes, yes, it does tend to happen that way. It's funny. It um um it does bring out my competitive nature having the uh, 
uh, the, the sort of the rugby in the background and uh, um, um, yeah so like when you say f- football and soccer I then start really pretending the English language um, it's not soccer you know things little things like that <laughs> but that's uh, that's uh, no it's good to see and um, so yeah tell me a bit more then so you um, were doing the, the, the sport and then you were studying as well and how did how did it develop and what um, what have you yeah, well, I mean, I was still continuing to train. In fact, I was—I uh, just won a Highland Games World Championship. Uh, you know, I was uh, a bit bigger guy than I am now. I'm, I'm you know, right now, I, I think at that point I was—I'll put it in maybe terms. You get—I was about 20 stone at that time, and now I'm uh, probably 20 or sorry, I'm probably about 17 now. So I've, I've lost about three stone uh, since the days I was competing in Highland Games. But, uh, you know, even though I wasn't, no one would consider me obese, I was just a big, you know, very big person. You know, I'm, mm. I'm 6'5 or 196 centimeters. Uh, and I was just, you know, at a point in my life where I was like, I just don't need to be as big as I am anymore. I'm kind of transitioning away from those sports. Um, I saw that, uh, you know, what I had been telling my patients for years because I was as an orthopedic surgeon, I see all kinds of overweight patients and they have joint pain and you tell them to lose weight. And most of them are, you know, generally unsuccessful. Once in a while you get somebody who's able to do that. Most of the time they're unsuccessful. And so I, uh, you know, I, I did what I thought was the right thing to do and it did work. I mean, I just massively cut how many calories I was eating and I upped my exercise and I moved more and ate less and I lost weight and I got leaner and I was pretty damn miserable you know, <laughs> with that strategy. Even though it worked, it just wasn't sustainable for me. And so then I kind of looked around at different diet options. You know, at that time it was a low fat, lots of vegetables, lots of fiber, a little bit of lean protein, uh, which is what many people would suggest that we eat, you know, as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a population. And uh, it just wasn't something that I could, I could honestly sustain uh, and be, you know, feel like I was not starving myself all the time. And so, I then kind of got into this sort of more paleolithic style of diet, mm. which just had its own appeal, and I, you know, read about that and got very good into cooking and doing recipes, and then that led me into a more low carbohydrate approach. Finally, I got on a ketogenic diet, uh, found that was a unique, you know, dietary strategy, just unique physiology. Uh, at that point, I, you know, I started to employ it with my patients uh, because we had a lot of patients that we wanted to help lose weight prior to to uh, joint reconstructive surgery, knee replacements, hip replacements. And the interesting thing that I found is not only were they having more success with the ketogenic diet than some of the other options, um, but more interesting to me is their, their joint pain was, was basically going away. And so some of these people that we had scheduled for surgery were telling me that my, you know, my knee doesn't hurt anymore. And so we said, well, then there's no reason we're going to do surgery on you. So I ended up canceling quite a few surgeries and that. Uh, and, and got really intrigued with that and wanting to continue doing that. And that really doesn't meet with the hospital goal of, you know, operating a lot of people to generate the revenue. And so there's mm-hmm. a little bit of uh, conflict that occurred because of that. But, uh, but at some point within my own journey, I was doing pretty good on a ketogenic diet. Uh, but I wanted, I was really continuing to focus on athleticism. And I started reading about 
athletes of you know years gone by where they would preference a meat steak and eggs or meat based diet. So I thought I would try that. I tried that, you know, for you know a period of a week or two and kind of actually felt pretty good. And then I kept kind of dabbling back and forth over a period of about six months. And then about six months into it, I said I'm just going to do it for 30 days. And this time I was pretty uh, vocal on social media and started to develop a little bit of a following. And, you know, it was kind of more as a joke. I put it out there, and people were all saying, "Well, you're going to get scurvy, and you're going to uh, your your arteries are going to clog up, and your colon's going to fall out." And we made a big joke of it, but you know, I did the 30 days, and it was you know basically 100% carnivorous, meat-only diet, and uh, you know, I felt really good. I mean, I really had good results. But at the end of the 30 days, I said, "Well, that was fun. I'm going to go back <laughs> to my more standard, you know, kind of balanced type of diet, or including you know plants again." And, I just started to feel bad. I just didn't feel as yeah, good. Right. Things started hurting. My digestion wasn't as good. My sleep wasn't as good. My energy wasn't as good. And so I, I, I kind of said to myself, you know, all things being considered, I really enjoy eating meat, and I'd rather feel good all the time than not. And so I kind of continued with that. And then one month turned into two, which turned into six months, which turned into a year, which turned into two years. And now it's almost three years that I've been doing this uh, kind of crazy Hmm. carnivorous experience experiment and I continue to thrive and do well which is uh, I think been very eye-opening to myself and now to literally tens of thousands of people who have adopted this and have seen for the most part very similar uh, excellent results with uh, you know coming off medication seeing chronic health problems dis- disappear uh, seeing autoimmune diseases go away seeing, seeing things like rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease and also colitis all these things resolving which most people would think is very unlikely particularly on a meat-based diet because we're always told that you know meat is bad you got to give up meat it's bad for it eat plants and uh that does not seem to bear out when we actually really critically look at it clinically yeah it sounds incredible um i suppose and um i think yeah one of the things we're told um in the media mainstream media um too much meat gives you heart attacks or simple things like that i think there seems to be a i don't know a a a a force i don't know anyway a collective of um very anti anti meat in all sorts of different fields as well of eat less meat and just what are your experiences of that or i don't know do you yeah, no, I'm, I'm very much aware of the sort of anti-meat uh, sentiments. Uh, I mean, I was part of it 10 years ago. I mean, I certainly, you know, even though I ate meat all the time, I would have, uh, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, what about it? I'd say, well, maybe it's, maybe we should cut back. Um, you know, part of the problem lies in the fact that we can't really good, do good nutrition research. I mean, it's impossible to do it in humans. We just can't do the studies we would need to do to really truly answer these questions, you know. I mean, to, to truly sort out whether meat was bad for us, we would have to put people on really a meat-only diet for, you know, a period of decades and control all the sort of different lifestyle variables and factors to really answer that question. Mm. Uh, you know, we don't have data on any, really, we don't have good data on any diet, really, you know, that's been controlled and properly randomized and assessed over the long period for actual clinical outcomes that matter, like heart attacks, strokes, cancer, diabetes, you know, all-cause mortality. That just, that's just impractical to do. So that we, what we do instead is we return to or rely on 
you know, population-based observational studies. Well, they'll say, well, these people that kind of ate a little more meat, did a little worse off with regard to heart disease and cancer, and therefore eating red meat is bad. But when you actually look at the actual diet, like I use the American diet, for instance, you know, the American diet, the standard American diet, or the crappy Western diet hmm. we're all familiar with, which clearly, well, I wouldn't say clearly, but very likely is contributing to much of our chronic disease problems, is not a meat-based diet. In fact, red meat in particular in the United States, it's only, the average American only eats about two ounces of red meat per day. I mean, that is a minuscule amount of the overall diet, and 70% of the diet comes from plants, and uh, a high percentage of that is refined, you know, processed grains, car- you know, and carbohydrates, uh, industrial seed oils, uh, sugar, soybeans, uh, you know, this is what the majority of the American diet is, a standard American diet, and for some reason we, we try to point the blame on meat, uh, hmm. you know, and, and that's really not a, uh, you know, you just can't get that data out there. In fact, when we know, we know if we look at traditional populations, and there have been several of them, you know, that ate a heavily meat-based diet, whether that's in Alaska, you know, Greenland, uh, you know, Canada, uh, the, some of the northern Scandinavian tribes like the Sami, the Nene, you know, the, the, the northern Russian tribes, some of the African populations like the uh, uh, Maasai and the Samburu, uh, we've got Mongolians, we've got some of the South American guests. When we looked at those populations prior to sort of adjusting their diet and introducing Western foods, prior to that, these people were free of disease. They largely did not have heart disease, they largely did not have cancer, they did not have diabetes, they weren't suffering with obesity, and yet their diet was, in many cases, at at times 100% fully meat-based, or mostly meat-based, or 90% meat-based. So we have these populations that we've looked at. Now, we don't have any modern epidemiologic data that we're looking at that actually looks at one of those populations. They're looking at the UK, they're looking at Australia, they're looking at the United States, and they're seeing all these fat people, and they're saying, yeah, well, they eat a little bit more meat than they do in India, and they've got their, and, and by the way, India is rampant with heart disease and diabetes, mm. but they're saying that, um, well, we see some people that eat a little more plants uh, or, or, or adopt a vegetarian lifestyle tend to do better. Well, we know that because we've been telling people that eating meat is bad for us for at least 75 years, you know, since Eisenhower uh, was president, that people that are health conscious, you know, sort of self-select themselves to eat less meat. They also tend to exercise more, and they also tend to, you know, have, have a higher income, and they tend to smoke less, and they tend to drink less, and they all the, and they wear their seatbelt, and they go to the doctor, and they do all the good things you're supposed to do that we think have a benefit. We call it the healthy user bias. And so hmm. whatever you sort of really well control for that, and, and there's been some studies out there. There's one study in the UK, I think it was called the Healthy Shopper Study, the 45 and up study out of, the, out of Australia, which was done a couple of years ago, you know, basically shows that people are not eating meat versus not eating meat don't have any difference in their outcome. But we sort of relied on these uh, older studies like the, the Seventh-day Seventh Adventist population health studies, which tend to point to a plant-based diet being more healthy. We have to remember the Seventh-day Adventists are a religious group, and they are vegetarian. That's a religious belief, so there's definitely some bias in there. In fact, many... In fact, the American Dietetics Association was founded back in 1917 largely by Seventh-day Adventists. So we've had vegetarians that founded our very science and nutrition going back 100 100 years now. And so they've infiltrated and have been part of the nutritional uh, 
uh, sort of uh, you know hierarchy high up in, in the ranks from the top. So we've got this very biased view of uh, pro vegetable anti meat, which I think is 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 clearly shows that you know we see people referencing these. The vegans like to reference you know the position paper by the American Dietetics and Nutrition uh, Association that states that you know vegan diet is healthy for all ages and stages. And yet, if we look at the authors, all three of the principal authors were ethical vegans mm. that wrote that study, and none of them declared that as a conflict of interest in their paper. And then the reviewers of that article, a large percentage of the reviewers were vegans, vegetarians, and seventh-day mm. Adventists. So we're getting a very, perhaps, biased view on nutrition uh, that doesn't seem to hold up. And what I'm seeing, and you know, I've got, and I'm still, we're collecting data. In fact, there's going to be a very big study on this population of, of the people like myself eating a carbon diet in, in, in by done by a very big university is you know probably it'll be released by the spring of next year uh but what i'm seeing preliminary i've assessed thousands of people in fact i surveyed uh basically eleven thousand people on this diet they're eating either 70 percent 80 percent 90 percent or 100 percent of their diet coming from meat and Something like 95% of them said their health dramatically improved. 70% of them were able to either completely reduce all medications, you know, reduce their dosage, or or eliminate some of their medication. You know, we're seeing disease reversal, mitigation of disease, less dependence on drugs, on people eating a diet that, if we were listening to sort of the mainstream nutritionists, it should be the worst diet on the planet. It should be killing them, and we should see all kinds of problems. But instead, we're seeing the exact opposite, which makes sense. I mean, we've been eating meat for you know, three million years as a species. Why would that suddenly become something that's causing us to have disease when we've got all these other foods which we've recently introduced? Seed oils have been in the diet 100, 120 years. High fructose corn syrup since the 1970s. You know, large consumption of sugar itself, maybe since the, you know, the 17th century, 16th century. So we've got these new foods, and not to mention all the ultra-processed, complete rubbish that's out mm. there, you know, it's, it's everywhere, it's 90% of the supermarket. I mean, why are we thinking that a food that we, you know, that, that we evolved as, is what drove our evolution as human beings, is now the food that's suddenly killing us? What other plant animal on the planet has a natural species-appropriate diet that at the same time causes our death? It doesn't make sense, it doesn't pass the common sense test, and it doesn't <laughs> seem to work, it, it doesn't seem to you know, be a problem when you actually eat meat, when you, you know, when your diet is actually meat and not 2.4 ounces like the average American, but when you're eating, you know, a kilo a day like many of us do, health gets excellent. And that's reflected in the historical record as well. Yeah, wow. Carnivore Diet Podcast on Every Man Radio. I found it interesting you mentioned the Seventh Day Adventists. Only because I'm. I'm in East Grinstead. So East Grinstead is a town in mid-Sussex, so southern southern England. And it is famous for um, L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology. And it's a bit of a... I don't know why it is. They say it's the ley lines or something. There's something peculiar about East Grinstead in that there are a lot of religions. And one of them is the Seventh-day Adventists. So they have, um, they have a church here. There's, and there's a few of them, and I, I frequently bump into them in the street when they're handing out, handing out flyers. Um, so um, yeah, no, it's interesting what you said about them because, um, well, uh, yeah, 
that I should find out a bit more about them and, uh, and see what they're up to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, uh, part of their, one of their icons is a guy named Ellen G. White, who in the late 1800s was having visions, you know, some sort of febrile visions, perhaps, and, and in those visions she felt that meat was bad for you, and then so we had her preaching that, and, that, and as, their, as their religion grew, the, the, the Kellogg's brothers, from Kellogg's oh, Foods, right. you know, John, uh, I think William Harlan, Harvey Kellogg, and John Kellogg, I think, were their names. I mean, they were uh, very much... Uh, opposed to red meat, they felt that meat caused carnal thoughts, lust. Uh, it, it caused people to masturbate, and so they were, you know, they were actually doing these crazy genital mutilation uh, things on, you know, young boys and girls. And they were feeding a bland cereal-based diet. They did not want them eating meat. I mean, this is kind of some, some really scary stuff they were doing back then. Mm. But it was a belief that red meat, you know, was was caused us to sin and be sinful. And in fact. The interesting thing we find is uh, when people go on a meat-based diet, their libido goes way up, which is kind of <laughs> interesting because if you listen to the plant-based people, they'll tell you, oh, red meat causes erectile dysfunction, which is actually the exact opposite occurs, which is uh, kind of interesting uh, for, for maybe your listeners to find that interesting as well. Yeah. There is a, and um, I'm trying to think back. I think it might have been um, one of the... Uh, posts that you made yourself actually on um, say Facebook or Twitter I don't there's so many of them but um, about Kellogg's and about not so much um, what they were were doing when you mentioned some of the more sinister sort of gentle mutilation things but um, um, I just remember it yes yeah resonating with me and think making me question well reinforcing my own sort of questions about cereals and this it is massive now just the Kellogg's company it's the breakfast cereal thing it's almost like a religion in many ways I don't know maybe maybe I'm over 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 say, saying that but um, it's almost like a, a right I don't know um, well, yeah, I mean, certainly the cereal industry is, is, is huge. I mean, it's, it's actually taken a little bit of a falling off in the last few years due to ketogenic diets and some of the popularity right. of that. So that's, that has uh, not made them very particularly happy. But, uh, yeah, it's a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, you know, it was something that was initially basically agricultural waste, which they figured out that they could turn that into put a little sugar on it and people would eat it. You know, maybe throw some vitamins in there because it was pretty low food quality. I mean, really, that's the problem is we have a food system that relies on really low quality food that we can get some calories from, but it's not much in the way of actual high quality nutrition. So we end up with people that are uh, constantly needing to eat this stuff because they're not getting their nutritional needs met. And they are just constantly hungry, constantly eating every two, three hours, the snack food industry capitalizes on this, you know, they continue to feed you things that are, again, not particularly nutritionally satisfying, and you're just constantly eating this stuff, and many people, because of that, end up over-consuming calories, and because they just can't, they can't get the nutrition they want from the food, so they eat more and more calories, and then we see these issues that come with obesity and, and then all the other diseases that, that are associated with that. Hmm. I, was going to, I was just going to make a silly remark, but, well, it doesn't matter because they've got a really cool tiger on it that's really a happy tiger. I want the happy tiger. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, they've been very effective at marketing to kids. I mean, it's, it's, and that's the thing we have, uh, you know, you think about it, if you look at the way kids are brought up uh, in, in, you know, Europe and the United States and other places, I mean, for those that don't have breast, that are, aren't breastfed, and, and, you know, I think most people agree breastfeeding is better, but not everybody does it, we have a, uh, a formula which is often uh, high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil, uh, and, and a bunch of, you know, mm. synthetic vitamins sprinkled in there. Uh, and then we go from that, and then we put them on a grate. We put them on a rice cereal. You know, we, 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 we give them some sugar sweetened other products. And so these kids start out uh, probably in the womb, they're exposed to too much glucose because mom's on the same crappy diet. They become <laughs> hyperinsulinemic. They start out, they're already in a, in a, in a sort of a physiologically deficit place. And, so then, and then you just keep playing away with the, the sugar and grains, and then it becomes part of their diet. And then by the time they're 12 years old, they're fat little kids, and everybody's wondering what's going on. I mean, this is this is what we feed our you know our, our species, and it's not it's not appropriate for us. I mean, it really isn't. I mean, it's you know it's, these things are meant to be uh, a minimal part of the diet, if any, and we we make them the, the majority. I mean, majority of the food fed to humans comes from I think it's wheat, corn, and soy, and then sugar. I mean, that's the majority of the world's calorie is coming from that, and so that is not what humans are designed for, though. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's a fascinating topic. It's uh, um, I remember when I was um, yeah started started my first steps into more of a paleo diet. I was never I was never one of these people that would measure my ketones and things like that. I'm not that kind of fanatical, but. Um, one things I loved was um, what I found incredible was buying a an an ox heart um, for the first time and just seeing this ox heart it was massive and I just could not believe how good um, slow cooking this ox heart for yeah some time um, but um, and slicing it and it was some of the best steak almost I've ever, ever tasted and it was. I was just so surprised because it was really cheap, and um, I just yeah found found that one, yeah that thing fascinating, um, and um, I think people generally tr- generally do shy away from offal, um, and it doesn't have a great reputation, I guess. Um, um, I don't know what um, what kind of things do you eat yourself? What are your your favorites, or, or what do you recommend? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what I recommend is you know you're gonna you want to you're gonna want to. So my recommendation is to not fail the diet is number one. You got to eat food that you enjoy. You know, you're never gonna okay. you're never gonna stick to a diet that you don't enjoy, no matter what it is. And then the second thing is you don't want to be hungry. If you're hungry all the time, you're not gonna stay in the diet. So. You know, with those caveats having said, I, I tend to gravitate towards fattier cuts of red meat, things like ribeye steak, short ribs, uh, brisket. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if I, you know, what the uh, analogy is in, is in, in the UK, scotch fillet or, you know, entrecote or whatever. Yeah. whatever, whatever. <laughs> that's, I think that's going French. <laughs> yeah, the French. Yeah. I've, got a French uh, I've got a French girlfriend here, so we, we sometimes we'll call it entrecote. But, um, so I mean I generally do that sometimes I'll have eggs sometimes a little bit once in a while I have bacon you know some a little bit of dairy not much I find dairy for me is 
you know, I do better when I'm not not utilizing it that much. Um, okay. I don't do a lot of. I don't personally do a lot of awful or organ meats. I don't. I'm not opposed to that. Um, I just, uh, for me personally, I don't find it that, that palatable. And again, I think the nutritional value of something you don't like is effectively zero because you're not going to eat it anyway, regardless of how 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 it tastes. Now, I, I certainly, if it's if it's in sausage or something like that, I'll have it. Um, I've definitely had a lot of people agree with you that they think heart tastes delicious and uh, uh, it's very good. And, I, and I've had these things out in restaurants and other places when, when it's offered to me, I don't turn it down. But, you know, if, if I'm left to my own devices and if I, if I want to be honest with myself, what I really like to eat, it's going to be some fatty cut of red meat. And that's, I'm fortunately in a country in a position where I can choose and it's available. And so that's what I do. I, 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 I you know, I feel very lucky because I eat the food I like. I get to eat, I, get, I enjoy every meal. I never sit down to a meal and say, oh darn, I gotta eat another goodbye steak again. <laughs> you know, so it's it's uh, it's kind of an interesting situation. You know, if we look at the, the history of, you know, civilization, uh, prior to agriculture, there was a period of time where, you know, we lived as hunter-gatherers, and then, you know, depending on how far back you go, there's probably a time when we were I would say predominantly hunters, probably of big megafaunal animals, when you know when they were when they were plentiful. You know, mm. 100,000 years ago, we had lots of these big, giant animals that, that were relatively easy for us to kill, uh, and not that many of us. So we had probably you know it's kind of like an all you can eat you know you know barbecue, <laughs> and you know and when, when those things ran out 25,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, human beings were forced to hunt smaller, quicker animals, rely on those for our food sources. Uh, we had to incorporate more plant foods, and then eventually, as our population grew, we had to develop, uh, you know, uh, to, to, in conjunction with civilization, uh, a, a stable food supply, and so that thus agriculture was sort of brought about. And since agriculture came about, uh, the human, the individual human health has gone down significantly. We know from the fossil records that humans have gotten smaller, our brains have actually shrunk by about 200 cc's, our skeletal structure has gotten weaker, our muscles got smaller, uh, we became a lot less robust of a species, uh, and that was a direct consequence of changing our, our basic primary food supply from a meat, you know, mostly meat-based diet to a now grain-based agricultural diet, which has not been a, I mean, it's been a boon for population growth and civilization, but it has not been a boon for individual human health hmm. yeah it's um i'm quite interested actually in the the, the that historical element as well i suppose one thing that um came to me just just in talking um you mentioned inuits but i could be completely wrong here um i'm just thinking back of something i read could have been 10 years ago where and again I don't know why I'm talking about awful I just <laughs> want to kick myself sometimes of how my brain is thinking but I just remember reading that when um, at, at period in t period in time um, the um, so they're on a toboggan and a hunter or group where they have lots of dogs and if they would catch um, um, a buffalo, I really am mixing my countries and don't know what I'm talking about, but 
they would um, um, eat the throw the the steak or the best bits of the animal to their dogs and uh, eat the what they viewed as more nutritious the offal that we generally now throw away again so I'm I'm kind of almost waxing waxing lyrical here I don't really remember specifically what I read but um, I guess to me that's an, an idea of how uh, diets change but how some foods are more important than people generally recognize um, I don't know yeah, no, just to speak to that topic so there are definitely mixed accounts on it depends on which which population you're studying you know there's there's guys like Vilmar uh, Stefanson who spent time with the Inuit and said you know they would eat you know liver from certain animals and then different different tribes would, would not would, would send the offal to the dogs uh, what, what consistently seems to happen is lean meat wasn't as prized, and so one of the one of the things we we seem to know from humans in general is that if we're if we're hunters, protein is not an issue of concern. It's not a nutrient of concern because you're going to easily meet your protein requirements. But fat, and, and, and arguably many people say fat is what drove okay. uh, our brain size because of the high energy concentrations in fat. You know, protein and carbohydrate are about the same, but fat is this very nutrient dense. Uh, uh, calorically dense uh, material, and so the seeking of fat, whether it's from brains, bone marrow, or some of the viscera, or the, the fat that's around the viscera, you know, if you look at a lean animal, the only place it's going to have fat is going to be around the organs, and so it's the desire for fat, I believe, which, dread, which you know, led humans to, to do that, particularly if they are in a subsistence situation, which many of these, you know, you know, indigenous tribes that we we encounter, we encounter today and in recent times almost always were you know on the on the on the fringes of society. We've kind of driven them from the prime places, and so now they're kind of when we see them, when we observe them, they're in the they're in the worst lands where they could possibly live, and so they have to you know they have to get everything they can out of the animal. You know, in your country, in the UK, the reason awful was there because it was it was it comes from the etymology word is to fall off, and so they would. It would fall away from the main kind of the animal, and that was often given to peasants because it wasn't found to be that palatable. Uh, and the, and the, the wealthy would, would save the, the better cuts for, for them to eat. Now, um, yeah. certainly, you know, if you look at a nutrient profile, things like liver tend to have more and more vitamin A, vitamin C, a little more iron, things like that than, than muscle does. Uh, but I think when we look at that, uh, the main really prized nutrient among all this is, is really the fat. I think that is what people are getting at. Um, you know, that's why you know the Native Americans would always pick out the fattest buffalo. They could tell from the, the sheen of the the, the the hide of the buffalo, the, the general shape, which animal is going to have more fat. And that, those are the animals they would isolate to kill. And then if they got a lean one, sometimes they just leave that for the dogs because, well, I guess too lean one, I could bother. And then again, this is in, this is in times of surplus Sometimes where they have, you know, they, when they when they're doing these giant buffalo drops uh, or bison kills, where they run a hundred of them off a cliff, and then they've got, you know, a hundred animals, and they may only eat a small percentage of them sometimes because they've got more meat than they can they can transport or, or consume. Organs were often eaten on the spot because, you know, fresh hunter might, you know, cut an animal up and eat the liver because that won't they won't keep very well. You know, you you have to eat organs right away. Uh, if we look at 
wild animals, and I think the same thing occurs with wild animals. Like if you look at a a wolf or a lion when it kills a lean, and usually they're hunting lean animals again because the big juicy fat animals are basically gone. I mean, lions can't kill elephants very readily, but once in a while they'll do that, but they generally can't do it. So they'll get these lean animals like zebra, they'll rip open the insides, they'll eat all the internal organs, that's where the fat comes from, because they need the fat, and then they'll, they'll eat the lean. And then it's kind of interesting, as humans evolved, initially there's good evidence that we, we evolved as scavengers, and so what happens is we would follow these you know, big cats around, when they got done eating, we were going behind, and what would be left would be the hindquarter, the lean meat, and that's probably what initially got us, you know, the, the, the higher quality food got us going, and then we learned how to crack the bones, get into the marrow, uh, get some more fat, eat the brains a lot of times. I think humans and, and wild dogs are about the only animals that can actually crack into skulls, get, get the brains, and so that's what we did. And then, um, as we learned to hunt maybe two million years ago as Homo erectus, then we could get the prime cuts, we could eat whatever we wanted, and we could hunt the big, giant megafaunal animals. So it's, uh, you know, depending upon whose accounts you read about what they do in Oregon, means some people prized it, other people other people fed it to the dogs. So it's, yeah. it's very, very, uh, I think, population dependent. Okay. And so what, um, in terms of fat then, what, what do you, what do you recommend? I am... Um, I quite like coconut oil, coconut milk, coconut oil. Um, less so lard, although occasionally good for good for making roast potatoes. I find the oils, yeah, better if it's um, that, more of an animal animal based oil. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, my personal recommendation for most people is to use animal based. You know, fats for cooking. I think it, it has a better uh, flavor profile in most cases. It also tends to stand up to heat better. It's not got some of the problems that polyunsaturated fats, like you know, we see with canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil, even olive, olive oil and avocado oil, is some of the problems with uh, oxidation that we tend to see with those. And so, I don't. You know, again, my diet is an animal-based diet. I don't find that adding coconut oil to a steak is particularly palatable. I don't think it. I don't think it improves the flavor profile at all, in my view. Okay. Uh, so I'd, I would rather cook a steak. Well, usually I just cook it in its own fat because I have fatty enough steaks. But I think something like ghee or butter or uh, you know, you know, goose fat, duck fat, you know, tastes better, works better, and probably in my view is a is a healthier option. Okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking, um, when I go to my relatives' houses, and um, I'm thinking of my mum, actually, she um, she uses this, I think it's called One Spray or something, It's um, she thinks, like many others, actually, you only need a little bit of oil, and so she does this little spray, but whether it's doing any good, and whether that actually spray is actually healthy, I do not know, but um, <laughs> that's interesting, and... Um, um, just thinking about yourself, what um, and myself, what in terms of exercise and on top of that, what are the things that you'd recommend or ways that you'd uh, um, recommend yourself? Yeah, well, I think that uh, you know, like I said, I'm in my fifties now, and I think it's important, and there's a lot of data out there that would support that that we you know we maintain a decent amount of strength and lean lean muscle mass, particularly as we get older. Um, I like 
you know, doing resistance training, compound basic movements. I do uh, a lot of explosive movements. I still do a lot of jumping and throwing and sprinting. I think those things are important to preserve those capacities. I mean, I, I feel that the closer I can maintain my level of athleticism and performance to that of when I was in my 20s and 30s, the better off I'm going to be from a health standpoint, from a disease resistance standpoint, and, and ultimately a longevity standpoint. And I think there's good data to support that. I also do uh, quite a bit of you know, high-intensity interval-type training. I find that you know, doing really short bursts of intense cardiovascular exercise, for me, is a better, more efficient way to maintain cardiorespiratory uh, uh, you know, good health rather than, you know, say, jogging for an hour or something like that, which I find incredibly boring and not particularly rewarding. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. A few days ago, I fell out with a with an old friend um, who is a, a marathon runner um, I suppose I should probably have just kept it to myself what I was thinking but I just thought okay there's lots of energy here uh, maybe you should just put that to something useful maybe just the those really long runs aren't the best use of your time or I don't know well I mean that's, that's it I mean I think that uh you know, I think exercise is important. Everybody should do that. But at the same point, if it becomes so time intensive, and then you have to question, you know, why you're doing this. And so I have gotten to where most of my workouts are 20 minutes, 30 minutes or less. You know, and I and I, but I mean, I put a lot into that time. I don't waste time. It's very much, you know, demanding. You know, it's physically demanding, high, high intensity. And that's, you know, again, I've got I've got 40 years of exercise experience, you know, in training, and so I, I'm very efficient in what I do. But yeah, I think that uh, you know, if we look at what's the most efficient use of your time, I don't find jogging, I don't find yoga, I don't find those things to be particularly useful uh, relative to the time commitment it requires. You know, like I said, if your goal, if your stated goal is to you know, have lean muscle mass and function, which I think is a good goal. Now, if your goal is to relax and enjoy yourself and socialize and stress relief and those other things might have a, uh, a more beneficial role. But again, it depends on what your goal is. And, and, you know, my sort of belief is I think the goal for most people should be, and again, that's my belief. Other people have other beliefs. The goal should be, when it comes to health, preserving function, preserving lean mass, you know, maintaining some strength. I think those things are particularly important. And, I, and it's not that those other goals, relaxation, socialization, aren't important. I think there's other ways to do those. That, that you know, I, I go for a hike with my family and my dogs out in the woods behind my house. That, mm. that for me, is that time. You know, that's when I do that. Okay. But for me, I mean, my exercise, I, I really focus on you know, what I think is important. Yeah. That's good. And um, just, um, I forgot to ask, but whereabouts are you actually in the in the States? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I split my time, I'm mostly here in Southern California, uh, and then I also spend some time in New Mexico, uh, so back and forth a little bit, but I would say 80-90% of my time now is in California. Okay. And um, what, um, what are your main focuses at the moment? What project, projects are you working on, or what are you marketing I don't know or how can we help 
<laughs> yeah, so I mean, I've got a book coming out, The Carnivore Diet. It'll be out November 19th, so that's up on, you know, that's available for pre-sale right now on Amazon and Book Depository for international uh, shipping. I think it'll be available worldwide. Hopefully, I suspect it's going to be relatively, you know, it's going to sell hopefully well. Uh, I've got um, a number of speaking engagements. I've been asked to speak, you know, quite all over the world. So I'm going oh, wow. to Malaysia next week, and then I'm going to Spain in the spring, and then I'm going to Copenhagen in, in the next summer, and, and probably in several other places throughout the U.S. So I do a lot of speaking. Uh, you know, of course, I've got my own podcast uh, that I do. I'm, uh, you know, I've got a couple of websites that I'm working on. We're, we're working on some. You know, different things for the for the community and, and health promotion stuff. So I've got uh, quite a few projects going on. Of course, I'm fairly active on social media, kind of stirring the pot a little bit, and <laughs> pissing you know pissing off a lot of people, and, and you know getting some vegans all wound up. But uh, I think it's important to have these conversations and, and really uh, ask the hard questions, and, and that's what I'm kind of doing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very very good very good thing to do ask the questions I'm I get a bit impatient <clears throat> with people I just think I just ah scream why why are you doing this <laughs> um, and um, yeah it's not how I want it to be or how it should be why aren't people you know taking more interest in themselves in their the where they are and their, their own food supply and things like that and um, I suppose one thing I'm interested in is, yeah, um, local sort of farm produce. I haven't really reached the stage where I'm you know, choosing the you know, more being more choosy in um, the actual farms I would actually go and visit. But uh, that's something I would you know like to get more involved with. Well, you know, I think to answer your question why more people aren't interested is because most people's bellies are full. You know, they're, not, they're not so interested in questioning nutrition when they've got a lot of a lot of calories and cheap, easy calories they can eat, and, and that's a, that's a unique situation throughout history. Most of the, most of the time, you know, food was not that abundant, and so now people are just happy because they've got a constant supply of food, and so uh, you know they're not looking around and saying, "Wow, I wonder why I'm so overweight or why I'm pretty sick," because they're they're so uh, busy, you know, looking at the phone or watching movies or playing video games, and they've got their constant supply of food, and so it's pretty easy to sit there and just, you know, in the short term, not question anything, and then it, you just got to step back and, and look at it from a big picture and say, wait a minute, there's a little bit of madness going on here, and is, is anybody going to do anything about it? You're right, most people don't care. Uh, most people are, you know, they, they don't want to take action or care to take action until something happens to them, until disease strikes or they, you know, they have some sort of wake-up call and unfortunately the food we eat kind of kills us too slowly, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not acutely toxic, it's chronically toxic, mm. so it's very easy to watch, uh, it's like the pot, you know, crabs being boiled slowly alive, you know, it's mm. kind of <laughs> hanging out, that's what we're seeing. Well, Richard, I've got to jump onto another phone call. I've had a great hour with you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. I wish you all the best. Great talking to you. Okay, well, let me know what I can do when this comes out, okay? Will do. It should right, be at the, the weekend. So, yeah, cheers. Will do. Thank you. Okay, take care. Have a great day. Okay, and yourself. Bye. bye. This is the hot new entry of the week. Oh. Uh.
listening to Everyman Radio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your friends on social media. Goodbye.